Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. When Season 5 starts next week, it's going to be with an episode called Blue Murder on the Golden Mile. It's a killer tale set in 1926, and it takes us inside what was then the most intensive manhunt and homicide trial in Western Australian history. One of the main characters in Blue Murder on the Golden Mile is a brilliant barrister named Arthur Haynes, and I featured him two years ago in the episode Murder on the Dance Floor, which was set the year before, 1925, in Perth. So, ahead of Season 5, I thought I'd dust off this two-parter in case you haven't heard the story. It'll give you a bit of an idea of just how formidable Arthur Haynes was as a defence lawyer. Certainly, if you were charged with murder back in the day in WA, he was the fella you wanted on your side. I hope you enjoy Murder on the Dance Floor, and I'll be back very soon with Episode 1 of Season 5. The following podcast contains references to sexual violence that may be disturbing to some listeners. It's 1.30am on Thursday the 27th of August 1925. Beneath the domed ceiling of the Government House Ballroom in Perth, Western Australia, hundreds of happy young people most in evening wear, a few in fancy dress, are foxtrotting to a hot new tune called Follow a Vet, which has recently been popularised by Australia's Gladys Moncrief. Although this charity fundraiser for the St John of God Hospital is due to wind down soon, when the music stops, the boisterous crowd claps enthusiastically for more. As the orchestra strikes up an encore and the foxtrot gets underway again, A willowy, dark-haired beauty in a peacock blue dress threads her way across the dance floor towards a couple. Coming up behind a handsome young man, she taps him on the shoulder. He turns, recognises her and says, Pardon me, but I'm dancing. 
There's a flash, a sharp bang, and the handsome young man clutches his head. The orchestra falters and quietens as confusion ripples through the crowd. A flapper giggles and says, what silly rot's on now? Was that sudden bang and flash some prankster setting off a firecracker? Or was it an electric light bulb exploding? But now, the handsome young man clutching his head falls to the floor with a thump, and the dancers realise what they're seeing. The young man's eyes are glassy and fixed on the ceiling high above, and his face is smeared red with bloody froth coming from his nostrils and mouth. The beautiful girl in the blue dress standing over him, she wears a trance-like expression, and in a slender hand by her side, she holds a silver automatic revolver. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, Murder on the Dance Floor. Perth in Western Australia is one of the most geographically remote major cities in the world. While these days it has a population of nearly 2 million, back in the roaring 20s it was home to just 150,000 or so people. But despite its size and isolation, Perth still strove to be a modern metropolis. Its young citizens saw the latest Hollywood movies, kicked up their heels to new dances and kept abreast of all the latest happenings in the city's three major newspapers. And it was in those newspapers' social notices on the 8th of October 1924 that a happy event was made public. The engagement is announced of Miss Audrey Campbell Jacob to Mr Cyril Gidley. It was a simple sentence to celebrate the imminent marriage of an otherwise anonymous couple of young lovers. Yet, within a year, Audrey Campbell Jacob and Cyril Gidley would be household names. Their stories splashed across the front pages of these very same newspapers as their lives and fates were laid bare in one of Australia's most extraordinary forgotten court cases. Audrey Campbell Jacob was born at Victoria Park, a Perth suburb, in 1905. Her mother, Jessie, soon had her hands full with Audrey's seven younger brothers and sisters, while Audrey's father, Edward, was a clerk of courts. Edward's job took the family to remote parts of the state, with Audrey spending much of her childhood living in Norseman on the edge of the vast Nullarbor Plain, some 500 miles east of Perth. It was here that she got her schooling at the Sisters of Mercy convent. Young Audrey was serious and introspective, good at music and excellent at art. She graduated school in 1921, aged 16, and it was around this time that her father took a posting in Fremantle. Life closer to Perth was far more interesting for the teenager who continued with her painting. And through her cousin, a wireless operator on a boat, Audrey met a lot of sailors whose ships came in and out of Fremantle. To her parents' increasing concern, Audrey spent time socialising with these older men, some of whom were married. She visited them on their ships, sold them paintings and went out with them to dinner or the theatre. Around autumn 1923, handsome Englishman Cyril Gidley 
entered the picture. He was a new arrival in Western Australia, having come to Bunbury from Colombo in Sri Lanka in late April as an engineer working aboard the steamer New Quay. But Cyril was discharged after taking ill and a week later the boat sailed on without him. Cyril relocated to Fremantle and signed on to work in the engine room of the motor ship Kangaroo, which did a round trip to Singapore every six weeks. Born in 1901, Cyril had grown up in Grimsby, Lincolnshire, with an older sister and younger brother. It was claimed that upon arriving in Australia, Cyril said his parents were wealthy and socially prominent, but because of his wayward behaviour, he'd been banished for five years to go out into the world and find his way. If he proved himself, that is, succeeded in a career and married well, Cyril was to be welcomed back into the family home to share in the family fortune. But the 1911 Census of England and Wales lists Cyril's father Joseph not as some landed gentleman or factory owner, but as a fish merchant's clerk. As we'll see though, much of what Cyril Gidley supposedly said or did came from a few select and highly biased sources. Soon after he signed on to the kangaroo, Cyril met Audrey, who was then 18. Initially, they were just friends. In mid-1924, during an argument with another crew member, Cyril was hit in the stomach with a sledgehammer, causing an internal injury that required surgery and a lengthy stay in Bunbury Hospital. Meanwhile, Audrey was wooed by another sailor, Claude Arundel, third officer on the ship Bendigo. Audrey and Claude met a few times. He asked her to marry him and she accepted before he set sail on a long voyage. After Claude left though, Audrey's romantic affections quickly veered to Cyril, now out of hospital, and the feeling was mutual. In October 1924, Cyril proposed with a sapphire ring and Audrey accepted, even though she was still betrothed to far-off Claude. Audrey wrote to her fiancé to tell him it was over. At the time of their engagement, Cyril had six weeks holiday and a shipping strike would keep him ashore in Perth for another two months until February 1925. During this time, he lived first in a room in the Fremantle boarding house of a man named Alan Spence, and after that, rented a room from his friend, customs officer William Murphy, in his home in the Perth suburb of Palmyra. Almost from the start, Cyril and Audrey's romance blew hot and cold. A month after their engagement, she moved out of her family's home in Fremantle and took a place in Perth to be nearer to him, only to return home within a fortnight. Then, in February 1925, Cyril and Audrey broke up and broke off their engagement. But in her later account, she said they remained secretly engaged and kept seeing each other when his Perth-Singapore schedule allowed. This wasn't what Cyril told his friend William Murphy. He said he and Audrey were finished and no longer involved after they split. In early August 1925, Audrey Jacob again moved to Perth. 
she took a room in the Surrey Chambers building, an architectural masterpiece that towered over the heart of the city just a few blocks along St George's Terrace from Government House. Audrey spent her time painting and socialising with her new friend Annie Humphreys, a young woman who lived in Fremantle but worked in Perth. As for Cyril, despite their supposed secret engagement, by her own account, Audrey now hadn't seen her fiancé for at least three months. But with the motorship kangaroo back in port on the 12th of August, Audrey wrote to Cyril to tell him she was again living in Perth. Yet he didn't write back, call her on the phone or come to visit her. So, with Annie in tow, Audrey went to the boat to see him. Aboard the kangaroo, Cyril said he hadn't received her letter. Annie left after a short time, but Audrey said she stayed for about three hours. Later, she would tell Annie that everything was fine with Cyril and that he'd promised to phone her on Saturday the 15th of August. She claimed he'd also said that after two or three more trips to Singapore, he'd get a shore job so they could be together all the time. Yet Cyril didn't call. So Audrey returned to the kangaroo on the Sunday. He told her he had a violent headache, so she left after half an hour and went back to Perth. The kangaroo set sail for Singapore on Thursday the 20th of August. Unbeknown to Audrey, Cyril wasn't aboard. With his ongoing gastric problem, he'd consulted his doctor, Roy Mitchell, who said he was medically unfit for a sea voyage and provided him with a certificate. In the past six weeks, Cyril and the doctor had become friends. Their fathers hailed from the same part of England, and Roy had invited Cyril to dine at his family home in North Perth. There, Cyril met Roy's 20-year-old daughter, Maud, and he'd since taken her out a few times. Now, with the kangaroo on its way to Singapore, Cyril again took a room at William Murphy's house in Palmyra, and on Sunday the 23rd of August, he went again to the Mitchells' house for dinner. As it turned out, the good doctor's wife was an organiser of the St John of God Ball at Government House, and she asked Cyril to take a ticket. On the day of the ball, Wednesday the 26th of August 1925, Audrey Jacob had a bad headache. The last thing on her mind was dancing, but her friend Annie encouraged her, saying that she'd have a good time and that she even had fancy dress costumes on hand. Audrey gave in. She was to wear the frilly black and white blouse and pantaloons of Pierrot, the male Italian pantomime clown with Annie donning a wig and similar garments to be the buffoon's female equivalent. That evening, in Audrey's rooms at Surrey Chambers, the girls changed into their outfits and whitened their faces with powder. Meanwhile, across town in his room in Palmyra, Cyril donned his evening wear and then hopped on his motorbike to zip east into Fremantle, where he had his photographic portrait taken in a studio. As fate would have it, Cyril almost didn't make it to the ball. Riding his motorbike north on Mount Bay Road, he swerved to avoid a log placed on the road, causing him to take a tumble and sustain a cut to the back of his head. At the ball, 
Dr Roy Mitchell inspected his wound and declared it wasn't serious. Audrey and Annie arrived at Government House at 8.30pm and, as was their practice in recent months, the girls danced together exclusively. With their clown costumes and white faces, they were an eerie sight, especially as few other guests had come in fancy dress. For the first hour of the ball, Audrey was bright and cheery. Then her mood turned dark when she saw him. Audrey couldn't believe her eyes. Cyril, he was supposed to be halfway to Singapore by now. What was he doing here? Who was he dancing with? Cyril had clearly seen her, so why didn't he speak to her or ask her to dance? Even worse than Cyril's snub was that whenever he looked at Audrey, he did so with what seemed to be a mocking sneer. Around midnight, after the 13th dance, for which Annie had partnered with a gentleman, Audrey said she was going to the dressing room. Annie was to dance the encore and then meet Audrey near the ballroom's entrance. But when Annie went to this spot, she couldn't find her friend, nor was she anywhere to be seen. As Annie danced the 14th dance, she saw Audrey standing where they had arranged to meet. Except Audrey no longer wore her clown costume. She'd gone back to Surrey Chambers and changed into a figure-hugging, sleeveless dress of peacock blue. Annie, her dance partner and another man, joined Audrey and ribbed her about changing from a male clown back into her female form. Annie and her male friend went out to dance again. Now Annie saw Audrey watching from the balcony above. She went to Audrey and said she needed to go back to Surrey Chambers to collect her things because she had to get the two o'clock car home to Fremantle. Audrey told her where the key was hidden and said she'd wait for Annie to return. Before Annie left, Audrey asked her where Cyril was. She replied, he is sitting in the lounge with a lady in green. Audrey asked Annie to tell Cyril she wanted to speak to him. On her way out, Annie gave Cyril this message. But he didn't go up to the balcony to see Audrey. Instead, Cyril took Maud Mitchell, she was the lady in green, out onto the dance floor to Foxtrot to follow a vet. It was now close to 1.30am. As the encore started... Audrey threaded through the crowd. Though right-handed, she reached out with her left hand to tap Cyril on the shoulder. Cyril turned, saw her and said, Pardon me, but I am dancing. Audrey raised the silver automatic revolver she held in her right hand. A shot rang out. Cyril threw his hands to his head and then he dropped to the floor. Witness Frank Cunningham, just a few feet away, was hit in the face with a spent cartridge ejected from Audrey's revolver. There was confusion first, then fear. Several women fainted. Many people ran to the protection of the ballroom's pillars, leaving Audrey all but alone in the middle of the dance floor. Audrey stood over Cyril, her face vacant, trance-like, chiselled in stone. People whispered, take her gun. 
No one did, fearful of who she might shoot next. Sydney O'Neill, a doctor at the ball, had the courage to go to Cyril's aid. He felt for his pulse, saw blood frothing from his mouth and nose. Four men came forward to help pick Cyril up off the floor. A journalist from the weekly tabloid The Mirror was just 10 feet from the shooting and he described Cyril this way. His eyes were open. There was an expression of wondering terror in them. The last semi-conscious thought that a dying brain had formed was surely expressed there. Having heard the shot, Police Constable John Wood, who'd been on duty in the ballroom's vestibule, rushed in. Look at the woman in blue, said one witness. As the police officer confronted Audrey, he said she uttered three words. I did it. Constable Wood took her gun and, according to varying witness accounts, Audrey said in a calm, even voice, either take me away or get me away from here quietly. In the cloakroom, Dr O'Neill removed Cyril's shirt to see a wound beneath his left armpit from which blood was flowing and air was hissing. The bullet had sliced through his aorta and punctured both lungs. There was nothing the doctor could do and within a minute, Cyril Gidley bled to death. Back in the ballroom, the orchestra struck up the national anthem. Socialites who minutes ago had been having the time of their lives filed out in small, shocked groups. The Mirror's man on the spot reported, Instead of the usual chattering throngs, grave-faced men and quivering girls went out to the waiting vehicles. They departed quickly. Before long, back in the hall, death, the girl and the law held sole command. Annie, who'd gone back to Surrey Chambers and changed, was walking back through the Government House gardens when an ambulance passed her and she heard a tragedy had taken place. Inside, she was stunned to find that her friend Audrey was in the custody of the constabulary for shooting Cyril Gidley dead. Perth's newspapers went crazy for the story, with The Mirror providing the most detailed, garish and speculative coverage. Ballroom horror, screamed the front page headline of its Saturday edition. The paper ran a large, charming, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth photo of Audrey and a more roguish one of Cyril with a cigarette hanging from his lips. The inside pages included the handsome portrait he'd had taken just hours before the ball, the photo he hadn't lived to see. The newspaper laid on plenty of purple prose, such as this front-page description of the ball. It was one of those scenes on which the high gods seemed to smile. Then a shot, hushed chatter, Little startled cries, a scatter of dancers, a girl with a revolver and a young man with a blood-smeared face dying on the floor. The high gods had deserted their chosen. Terror was upon the gay hall. Mirth fled away into the shadows. 
the glory of the lights and the gaiety of the colours, the music and that laughter gave way to the awe that betokened the presence of the dreadful great. King Death had entered in. A few hours after the shooting on Thursday morning in the police court, Audrey Campbell Jacob was formally charged with the willful murder of Cyril Gidley. As would become standard in the reporting of the case, Audrey's stylistic choices were keenly observed. This time, she was attractively dressed in blue, wearing over her dress a long blue coat. A small hat of similar shade completed the picture. In the court, Audrey also wore that same dazed expression she'd had when standing over Cyril after she'd shot him. Audrey made no statement and was remanded in custody. While Audrey wasn't speaking to the police, the Mirror was doing some talking for her. The newspaper reported that her relationship with Cyril had been turbulent, unpleasant. After one quarrel at the beach, it claimed, Cyril had hurled her engagement ring into the sea. Cyril had also been behind Audrey leaving home last November and he'd always been the domineering one in the relationship. But the Mirror also knew that Audrey and Cyril had since patched things up. Quote, While it is known that it was broken off some time ago, the pair latterly became the best of friends again and it is understood that the girl was expecting another ring from Singapore to replace the one that had been thrown away. These details in the mirror could only have come from people close to Audrey, that is, her parents, or more likely her lawyer, the renowned Arthur G. Haynes, who was sowing the seeds of a defence. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. With a large number of his friends and co-workers paying their respects, Cyril Gidley was buried on Friday the 28th of August. Of the 20 floral wreaths, the most eye-catching was one of daffodils with a border of purple blooms that arrived anonymously with a simple inscription, from one who will never forget. The mirror reproduced it along with a sample of Audrey's handwriting. The newspaper reckoned there was a striking similarity and reported further investigations left little doubt that she had sent the wreath. Yet there was a far more important handwriting comparison still to come. While Audrey awaited the start of the inquest into Cyril's death, the Mirror helpfully reported that she was a model prisoner, making life easy for her guards and that she spent most of her time reading high-minded books and that she had asked for a Bible. 
The inquest into Cyril Gidley's death began at the coroner's court on Thursday, the 3rd of September, 1925. And each day, the public gallery was packed, mainly by women keen to get a glimpse of the fashionable young woman accused of murder. Newspaper men were also fascinated by Audrey, and the most extraordinary reportage again came from The Mirror in an article headlined, The Remarkable Eyes of Audrey Campbell Jacob. Accompanied by an extreme close-up of said eyes, the court reporter devoted about 500 words to their mesmeric qualities. Her eyes have been discussed by every observer, the report began. They are the eyes that the student of human nature would never forget. The article went on to describe her facial expressions, the appearance of lines around her mouth, lips twitching nervously and so on, but kept coming back to those eyes. Quote, She does not look at you. She looks through you, away somewhere in the distance, as it were. They are of no defined shade. Blue-grey would probably be the nearest description. They are the eyes that suggest artistry and intellect and the habits of one who thinks much. They seem to be forever looking for something that is not in the immediate vision. They are remarkable, the eyes of this 20-year-old girl. The most remarkable, I think, that I have ever seen in or out of court. Even more remarkable was what the very first witness, Audrey's mother, Jessie Jacob, told the inquest. Suddenly, what had seemed like an open and shut case took on new complexity with serious allegations raised about who had been the real villain. Jessie Jacob testified that Audrey had known Cyril about two and a half years. He had, she said, asked for and received her permission to marry Audrey and he'd showed her the sapphire ring he planned to give her. Confirming what had been seeded by the mirror, Audrey's mother claimed that Cyril had been cruel and domineering, not just to Audrey, but to her and then to her husband, Audrey's father, Edward. Cyril, she said, had inveigled his way into her daughter's affections and systematically set out to take control of the family. Cyril, she said, had told her dreadful lies about Edward, saying that he was having affairs. Jessie's mind had been so poisoned by these slanders that she'd confronted her husband, who, despite his innocence, then left the family home to live at Alan Spencer's boarding house in Fremantle. Not content with having done this damage, Cyril had then moved into the same boarding house under the assumed name Cyril Douglas to spy on Edward. His purpose was to increase his leverage over Edward by continuing to gather evidence of his supposed affairs. Cyril's motive for all of this? was to stop Edward from objecting to his sudden engagement to Audrey and to prevent him from returning to the family home and learning of Cyril's other plan. Cyril, Jesse told the inquest, was a smuggler. His scheme 
was to pay for two rooms to be added to her house so he could use them to hide his ill-gotten goods. He told Jesse he'd once been raided by detectives and had smuggled goods seized, so he kept pressuring her to allow him to build these rooms. To further his control, Cyril said he wanted to break into Edward's room at the boarding house and steal the title to the Jacobs family home. Cyril, she said, had said if Edward disturbed him during this break and enter, he would just kill him with a blow to the head. Cyril's grand scheme, Jesse told the inquest, was to amass a fortune of £600, marry Audrey the moment she turned 21, and then return home to England to impress his family with his wealthy life and beautiful wife. Cyril, Jesse told the inquest, was such a cad that he'd openly boasted to her of how he'd gotten other girls to agree to marry him, then callously thrown them over before tricking them into returning the engagement rings. The latest of these girls, named Ethel Buckley, had been ruthlessly dumped when Cyril met Audrey. But this Ethel, Jesse said, wasn't available to corroborate her claims because just two days earlier she'd left Western Australia bound for England. But Jesse hadn't yet told the court the worst of Cyril's sadism and violence. He'd once threatened to kill Audrey if she left him and put his hands around her throat to demonstrate how he'd do it. Then, on the 9th of November 1924, when Audrey received a letter from Claude Arundel responding to her breaking off their engagement, Cyril had become so jealous and angry that he had raped Audrey in his room at William Murphy's place. Jesse told the inquest that Audrey came home at 11 o'clock that night in a bad mood and had gone to her room and sobbed. She wouldn't say what was wrong, but Jesse had noticed a mark on her shoulder. Then, the next day, Jesse had seen stains on Audrey's clothing, the implication being that this was semen on her undergarments. Jesse told the court, Audrey told me not to be bad-minded, there was nothing wrong, but she has been moody and not the same girl since. Cyril, the next day, then told Jesse that because she wouldn't agree to his smuggling plan, Audrey would have to leave home, move to Perth and earn money as a typist. Audrey left home the very next day. The day after that, Cyril left a calling card at the Jacobs' house. It read, Have called to inquire where Audrey is. Gidley. The next day, he wrote a longer letter. Dear Mrs Jacob, I called yesterday, Wednesday, to see if anything was wrong. Where has Audrey got to? She promised to meet me in the evening, but never turned up. By the reception I got when I called, it seemed to me there is a grievance. Probably you can enlighten me. I would be very pleased to know. Yours sincerely, C.D. Gidley. A third letter, two weeks later, was longer. Mrs. Jacob, it may or may not interest you to know that I have at last found Audrey, who told me the reason she left home. It is not my way to threaten people, which I am not going to do, but unless Audrey is treated with more respect before I sail again, 
I shall make it my duty to tell your brother, Mr. Jonah, in Perth, all that I know also about your husband's homecoming. I do not think that would be very nice. I am sorry to write this, but my belief is that Audrey has not had a fair go. And as to half-feeding the girl, well, that is not very mother-like. I will give you until Tuesday to think well what I have said. If by then you still wish to treat your daughter so, I will carry out my intentions. If I am standing in the way, meaning the friendship which exists between Audrey and myself, we will leave it to her to decide. I am confident there is a grievance somewhere. Audrey has been very good to you, and this is what she gets in return? The reward is very shallow for what she did for you a few weeks back. Don't forget that, please. Trusting you will think well before being definite. She has been more than a daughter to you, and you only know it too well. I will not go into any further details. See Gidley. In the inquest, Jesse characterised these notes and letters as threatening. They were also, she said, his attempts to make it look like he didn't know where Audrey was, even though he'd been the one who'd orchestrated her leaving the family home. Stunningly, after so much scheming to get Audrey out of the house and to preserve their engagement by poisoning her mother against her father, Cyril, soon after writing these letters, had supposedly said he was joining the Freemasons and that they would not approve of him being engaged to a girl who lived away from home. So now he declared that Audrey had to move back home and that he had to publicly break off the engagement, though he wanted to keep it going secretly. Around this time, Jesse said, Edward was working in Catanning, but had arranged to return to the family home when he was transferred back to Fremantle. Learning of this, Cyril was supposedly furious and went to see the Undersecretary for Law to try to make Edward's appointment to Catanning permanent. Jesse didn't explain how the lowly sixth engineer of a ship would have such pull. She claimed she'd gone to the Public Service Commissioner to block Cyril's scheme. When Edward returned to the family home, Jessie said she'd told Cyril if he wanted to continue to see Audrey, he'd have to do it away from the family home. And on numerous occasions, Jessie said, she had actually arranged dates for Cyril and Audrey. This was the man who she claimed had raped and threatened to kill Audrey. The man who'd threatened to murder her husband the man who'd tried to turn her home into a smuggler's den. Despite all of this, Audrey had remained engaged to him secretly this whole time. So how had Audrey obtained a gun? Jessie told the court that it was given to her by her previous fiancé, Claude Arundel, for her own protection. But Audrey had left it in her bedroom at the family home in Fremantle when she'd moved to Surrey Chambers in Perth in early August. A week after she moved in, Audrey had been in her room when someone had stood outside wiggling the door handle for about half an hour. She'd been terrified. Then, on Sunday the 16th of August, 
after seeing Cyril aboard the kangaroo, Audrey had returned to Surrey Chambers and, with Annie, gone to a party that evening held by one of her neighbours. When she returned to her rooms, she found that her diary, along with letters from Cyril, were missing. Someone had also taken Annie's address book. Afraid, Audrey the next day asked her mother to send her gun to her. Jessie also testified that for a number of days prior to and including the day of Cyril's death, she'd seen him riding his motorbike up and down the street outside her house. This worried her because she regarded him as a dangerous man. Audrey's father, Edward, didn't have much to say to the inquest. He said he'd only met Cyril twice, with one of those times supposedly out on the street after he'd realised that this man at his boarding house, Cyril Douglas, was trying to break up his family by spreading lies about his supposed affairs. He reckoned he'd gone to Cyril and said, What is your game trying to separate my wife from me? You know perfectly well there is not truth in these statements. Why can't you fix it up between us? Cyril had supposedly replied, I can do lots of things if I like. Despite all the contortions and seeming contradictions of this mass of confusing testimony, Jesse and Edward Jacob were not cross-examined. Instead, Crown Prosecutor Hubert Parker said he was in the position to call evidence to refute much of what Jesse and Edward Jacob had said about Cyril. For instance, as for Cyril's slanders being the reason Jesse had kicked Edward out of the house, Parker had Fremantle Police Court records that showed the separation had actually been ordered in August 1924 because Jesse had charged Edward with cruelty. But Parker had to tread a fine line with his prosecution. That was because everything Jesse and Edward had claimed, whether true or false, actually had no bearing on whether Audrey was guilty or innocent of the willful murder of Cyril Gidley. If Parker spent time refuting irrelevant claims, he could be seen as smearing Audrey's moral character, and that could potentially prejudice her right to a fair trial and see the case thrown out. But what other witnesses said did cast doubt on what the court had heard from Audrey's parents. The landlady of Surrey Chambers said that Audrey had told her her diary had disappeared, but that she had not said it had been stolen. Maud Mitchell, who'd been dancing with Cyril when he was shot, said she'd been out with him three times previously and that he had never mentioned Audrey to her, let alone to say that he was still secretly engaged to the woman. William Murphy said he'd known Cyril for 18 months and had met Audrey during Cyril's first day at his place. Murphy said his understanding was that Audrey had been Cyril's fiancée, but they had broken off their engagement around February. Murphy said he knew nothing of false names, spying at boarding houses or Masonic involvement. Murphy said that it was true that while Cyril was staying with him, a search warrant for smuggled goods had been executed, but nothing had been found. He rejected the allegation that Cyril was a smuggler and cunning schemer. Instead, he said, 
he was always a gentleman. But it was William Murphy's account of the last 10 days of Cyril's life that caused another sensation. Cyril, he said, had told him that he'd been visited by Audrey aboard the Kangaroo on Sunday the 16th of August. But he hadn't wanted to see Audrey. He was due at the Mitchell's house for dinner. So Cyril had escorted Audrey from the ship and to the nearby train station. Upset by this rejection, Audrey had threatened to shoot Cyril and then shoot herself. Cyril told Murphy he'd treated the threat as a joke and told Audrey to go ahead. But Cyril? He'd actually been more concerned than he'd let on. Three days after Cyril's death, Murphy had found a sealed envelope in his room. It was addressed only with the word THE. Who Cyril had meant it for was never established. The letter inside read, MS Kangaroo, Fremantle, 16.8.25. I, Cyril Gidley, do hereby state that Audrey Jacob visited me on the above ship without my permission. While on board, she tried to make herself a nuisance and, rejecting her advances, threatened me with my life if I didn't make her my friend again. The reason I refused was she turned me down using her words, I have plenty of good friends on the other ships. This was just seven months ago, so I let her go to her other good friends. Cyril had signed his name and dated the letter again, adding a postscript that read, This note is in case she does keep her vow. While everything the inquest had heard about his evil ways came via contradictory and confusing testimony from Audrey's parents, here was Cyril Gidley speaking from the grave to say that he and his former fiancée were long separated due to her infidelities, but she that very day made an unwanted visit and threatened his life when rejected. Audrey's defence lawyer, Arthur Haynes, attacked the credibility of this letter, saying it hadn't been established as being in Cyril's handwriting and that it seemed strange it had been found by Murphy but missed by the police when they had searched Cyril's room. Haynes confidently predicted the letter would not be admissible if this case went to trial. But what had to strike everybody was that Cyril had written this letter the same night that Audrey's diary and letters were supposedly stolen from her room, frightening her so badly that she sent for her gun. Haynes in court claimed Cyril was responsible for the theft of the diary. Haynes alleged that Cyril had been covering his tracks, except Cyril had that night been having dinner with the Mitchell family. Further, to explain that there hadn't been a break-in, Audrey would later say she'd left the key in the door to her flat, which was strange because she also made a point of saying that she was so security conscious she never hid her key in the same place twice. The inquest next heard from the police officers who had taken Audrey into custody and charged her. Constable John Wood testified that immediately after the shooting, Audrey had said, I did it. Take me away. Sergeant William Brodie said that at the police station, 
Audrey had asked if Cyril was dead. He'd replied, yes, he lasted only four or five minutes. She then said, he only got what he deserved and everybody who knows him will say the same. Constable Alfred Tim said he was on duty at the ball and was for a time left in charge of Audrey. He said he'd asked her, whatever possessed you to do a thing like this? He said she replied, I had my reasons. He said they must be serious to justify this. She replied, I gave him plenty of warning, but he took no notice. Defence lawyer Arthur Haynes claimed the cops were putting words in Audrey's mouth. As Audrey wasn't going to testify, the inquest had to rely on Annie Humphrey's account of the events leading up to Cyril's death. That included the disappearance of the diary. She said that Audrey had told her the diary had contained the names of people who would perhaps be glad to get hold of it. She told the inquest that Audrey had been happy at the ball until she'd seen Cyril and then her mood had darkened. Most crucially, Annie told the inquest that she hadn't seen Audrey holding a revolver when she'd returned to the ball in her form-fitting, sleeveless blue dress. Quote, She displayed both her hands to me on the balcony and she had no weapon in them. It was put to Annie. Did she have any garment other than her dress in which she could have concealed the pistol? Annie's reply... She had a long white scarf. But what Annie, Maud, the police and other witnesses did not say was that they saw Audrey holding a silk handkerchief. And this was a detail that would be crucial when Audrey Campbell-Jacob stood trial for the willful murder of Cyril Gidley. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. The second and final part of Murder on the Dance Floor will be released next week, so make sure you're subscribed so you get it as soon as it's out. In the meantime, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating of the show at iTunes because it helps Forgotten Australia reach other people. For more information, including news articles and photos, go to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.